Welcome to the Golf Exposed Podcast. It is non-stop trash. I'm supposed to be pros here. I would be barefooted, drunk, playing golf. Golf Exposed Podcast. But it wasn't talked about like it is now. We got our kick. Where we give you the good, the bad, and the truth about golf business, betting, and stories. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome back to the Golf Exposed Podcast. My name is Jordan Michael Colson, here with John Brown, and an esteemed guest is with us today. And John, the best way to describe this guy and get my Gatorade ready, because I have a lot of things that I need to say about this young man, I would describe him as an experienced founding partner with a demonstrated history of working in the hospitality and financial services industries. He's skilled in negotiation, budgeting, food and beverage, event planning, (sighs) hospitality management, strong entrepreneurship, professional and a graduated from Johnson and Wales University, and his current endeavor, among others, is becoming a founding partner at Resort Development Partners. We'll get into all of that. His name is Frank Denniston, and he graces us with his presence today, John. Before we bring him in, how did you meet this guy? Frank and I met at the PGA show, I believe, correct? And uh, that was probably about three to four years ago, and we've developed a friendship since then. And, uh, and obviously, Frank's in the business, operates a company that runs uh, multiple private clubs, which he'll discuss a little bit right now. He's been uh, you know, somewhat of a mentor to me. He's got a great depth of experience and overall a great guy and you know, someone that has a network of people in the industry that I think you know, rivals anybody that I've met. I've always enjoyed my conversations with Frank. Well, John, you're thinking that I did that little intro off the top of my head. I'm just trying to impress Frank, and I read his LinkedIn, and also the scotch is starting to kick in. So, (laughs) Frank, welcome to the program. We are absolutely thrilled to have you here today. Thank you, gentlemen. Thank you. So, I'd like to start off by asking, as you guys know, I kind of approach it from a layman's point of view. I'm looking at all of your experience, and from someone who works multiple jobs, I'm blown away that you're able to do that. So, my first question to you is, how do you continue to to innovate in your industry, and because I think a lot of people could learn something from that. There's a lot of young people that I work with that don't really want to work hard, and uh, you are an example of success coming from a vast array of backgrounds. So how do you continue to be innovative in your industry and grow with the time, so to speak? That's a great question. Being in the industry of golf, you know, I originally came out of the hotel industry, and you've got to continue to you know, reinvent yourself or you're not going to be a competitor. I think our industry tends to stand still. You know, how many conferences have we been to where we say that um, we're innovators, but we're still using technology from 15 years ago? Compare us to hotel or airlines, we're still light years behind. John, you've got some great things that you're moving forward with, which, which are exciting. But I don't know if I call it boredom. I just like to look through a different window at every opportunity and those different windows take us down different paths and we work real hard we play real hard but we 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 like to you know reinvent ourselves constantly frank i'd love to know about your new venture with resort development group what you're doing the type of clubs you're involved with and just your general business strategy as it relates to private clubs i think it's unique i think it could lend a great perspective and another solution in the marketplace yeah great question so About five years ago, my partner and I, Douglas White, we decided that there's a unique opportunity in the development in real estate and hospitality space that include that golf was kind of over here. And what we decided to do was build an organization that could go in and service hotels, clubs, residential developments. We've all got both. My whole team has uh, experience in HOA 
in development. We did, we were exclusive providers for many national home builders. So we more or less would architect what their future was going to be. And that parlayed into an idea that we could go in to get these new clubs through a different area. And, you know, there's definitely a need to let a club stay private while not being taken over by some of the big guys. You know, we could name them. We all know who they are if you're listening to this podcast. But what we saw in the space at the highest level was these operators would go in, they'd rebrand you, and you would lose your identity. What we identify with is is old legacy clubs. We want a story behind it. We want stuff from the 1800s. We want to go in and rebuild that brand and return it to its original state. You know, I grew up in South Florida. Coincidentally, uh, my first boss was, well, it was my mother, but Jackie Gleason was her boss. That was to keep my brother and I from fighting around the house while she was at work. What I remember is my father being at the golf course, my mother being at the tennis club. We'd go to the pool. We'd get together for lunch. We'd go back to our, our corners, tennis, golf, swimming. And then that was Saturday. We'd get back and do it again Sunday. And what we found in the space nowadays, if you're not under one of those national providers, is that these clubs get mothballed. The boards and the governance are old. They get tired. What was relevant in the, not kidding, 1892 or 1920 is no longer relevant now. So we go in through, you know, we look through a different monocle and we say, let's rewrite the bylaws because the governance is messed up. And we will then um, focus on the, the lifestyle amenities. The six clubs that we have, we've gone into, the food and beverage areas were mothballed. Tennis courts were knocked out because the members who had bag storage wanted to be closer so they didn't have to carry their bags, even though they were in bag storage. So pools were filled in. The entire banquet facilities were mothballed. Lights didn't work. And they, they got to a point where the moms and the kids didn't want to come by anymore. And it was an old men's golfer's club. And guess what? You talk about the death spiral. Every one of our clubs were in that death spiral. So what we do is we go in and we'll help them get out of there. And and, and there's always debt on the property. Let's not forget about that. All the dollars continue to make it to the golf course. Nothing ever makes it inside. And it's no longer a viable proposition. They're just waiting for a national home builder to come by and develop it. So uh, we'll go in and we'll give them a solution. Resort Development Partners is our consultancy where we'll go in and write the roadmap for them and we'll be able to vet if this is an opportunity for us. And we'll go in and vet the opportunity. And if it makes sense for us, we'll go hard with dollars and we'll enter into a long-term agreement where we own all the economics. It's not the easiest thing in the world to go into the private club community and deal with boards and committees and have them change their mindset. How do you accomplish that to deliver more of a lifestyle club? Obviously, there's an economic situation that's usually involved, but how do you just navigate that political landscape? That's where the challenge is, and that's where all the time is consumed. If we ask the boards of directors, it's hard to get a clear idea of what the true landscape of the club is. We could look at financials just like you do every day. It doesn't really tell the story. We go deep into the hearts and throes of the members. We set up vision sessions where we speak to the wives. We speak to the kids. We speak to the members. How long have you been a member here? I've been a member for 55 years. Why did you join here? 
when did your wife stop coming? And I already know the answer because we already went through and looked at their spend. Mm -hmm. Around 1978, she stopped spending. We went through the little index cards. <laughs> and so what we do is we understand why did you originally join here, what kept you here, and why do you no longer spend? And what would it take to bring back that legacy club? And, you know, in the industry, all the, all the activities are, are through and through. The pickleball, the... The dining, dining is very important. Having relevant facilities. When we when we go in and take out the debt, the the biggest expense is not necessarily the debt. It's going in and redoing the capex. Mm -hmm. You know, uh, we have an in-house program, in-house design. Our design team has done all the emerging markets for Marriott. So when you walk into any of our clubs, they resemble the W Hotel in New York, but they're trendy. They're trendy, and what we've seen is we've been oversubscribed with membership. We've sold out. We cap our membership. It depends on which facility, you know, anywhere from 275 to 350. And we watch our average age as a company go from 67 years old down to 49 years old. And that's where people are spending, you know, at that age. I kind of wonder this about you, John, but for but as well, when you do so many different things in this industry and all the nuts and bolts that you just talked about, does it ever diminish your love for the game itself? Because I often wonder from working in, on films, I was like, that, this is what this is. I don't even want to watch movies anymore because I, I know how the magic works now. So do you still love the game as much as you did? Do you love it more because you understand it, make a living from it, or does it diminish a bit? No, it's funny. Early in my career, I was not a golfer. I played golf in high school. I, I played three times a year whether I needed to or not at industry events, um, mostly focused on hospitality. Not necessarily golf. I'd be at all the conferences, but by the diversification, I've actually become a raving golf fan. I mean, I, I'm embarrassed to say I probably golfed 67, 68 times last year. Not because of COVID, just because I was passionate about it. So I think I've got a new understanding of it. Coming from the hospitality space to, you know, over the last 10 or 15 years, I've gotten to understand agronomy. I've gotten to understand I'd go deeper on sales and marketing. And, uh, you know, I always had the general management card in my pocket, but to get in and understand, you know, chemical titrations and stuff like that, I mean, it's, I've, I'm actually enjoying it now. I get to see the fruits of what my employees are telling me. What are you most passionate about from what you do now? Like what gets you out of bed in the morning and makes you say, I, I'm willing to put in probably, what, 14-hour days? Looking to John's earlier question, it, it is difficult to, burn, to herd the chickens, I call it. You know, um, there's a lot of strong personalities in a private club, but I thrive on looking, for, being an outsider looking in and then saying, there's no, there's no door here. You got to <laughs> find the door. You got to kick the door in. And, and understand what's going on in there and figure out a solution. That's probably your best asset, right? Being an outsider and coming in and being impartial, but also obviously having the expertise and background you have, but being able to remove the emotion, assess it for what it is in the market it's in. Is that the strongest component of what you do? That, that's actually it. And it's, and, and it's also the ability to comfortably handle the members who are emotionally attached to it. The first club that we did was in Indianapolis, and sitting around there in one of those vision sessions, we brought in all the old presidents that were still alive. And there was, there was, guys, there was guys that had four generations of members there. The individual was 87 years old, but his, his great-great-grandfather, you know, mm -hmm. they're all sitting around the table, 
to say that they were stuck in their ways, I don't want to use that term, but this is how it's always been. And we know, we, we, we know that the, we, the industry hasn't changed. The club mentality has never changed because nothing new has ever been introduced to them. So. I think the private club world is a world where there's a lot of opportunities if they're willing to explore some you know, new innovative ways to think. Uh, obviously, you're searching for that. What I want to know, because it's interesting to me, is how do you find these opportunities? I mean, is this word of mouth? Are you picking specific locations, markets? How are you finding these opportunities to have these initial conversations, which might lead to, you know, a, frankly, a new business model for a private club? Every business has a business plan, and we've got our MSA criteria. We've we've got all that criteria, but. Yeah, word of mouth and referral is the best. That's how we've grown, 100%. And it continues to grow. Unfortunately, you know, COVID aside, unfortunately, the industry has gone through a great metamorphosis this past year. And I think people are believing the headlines. I'm a little bit suspect as to what's going to happen in two and three years beyond this. You know, once the tidal wave, you know, washes back out, once our members are told they have to go back to an office in downtown. I mean, I think this model is going to change a little bit. But and unfortunately, there are the clubs. The phone is ringing, which is great. We look at every deal. Again, that wall, where, where's that entrance? How do you get in? Unfortunately, there's some clubs that, that just, they're not viable. And, and they're never going to be, a, you know, a destination private club. I mean, it's, it's unfortunate, but they're not. How has the internet changed your business? Internet's changed our business mostly, not necessarily through membership. I mean, we, we, you know, we take our marketing approach with a with a sniper rifle, not a shotgun, and you know, we get the lists. But what what we do is we we target corporations. Corporations bring us people, but just to broadcast, we're not an organization that broadcasts, you know, a membership deal. Where we do see success is if we do all of our banquets pre-COVID, but we've got a lot of momentum going on right now for, you know, we expect some cans to be kicked down the road again, but... I just asked how the internet has changed the business, but it seems like what you, come, what you keep coming back to is relevant in all business endeavors. It really just comes down to making strong relationships and nurturing the relationships. Well, it is, and, and, and it's good to make that relationship. It's good to make the deal. But what we got to do is not create a new product that nobody's familiar with. So when we do these vision sessions, they tell us what they want. If we deliver it, we got a fully subscribed membership. Do they actually know what they want or do they know what they think they want? And you have to kind of find some metamorphosis of what is actually tangible. Yeah, I mean, indoor tennis, that was that was something that came back up. And I was like, at one of our facilities, and I said, we can do indoor tennis, um, but our, we have a philosophy that we're not going to assess you. Like, when we come in and take over the asset, assessments are gone because we know that members are assessment fatigued. I mean, mm-hmm. you know, dues are above market typically. Uh, the assessments are just redundant and you know everyone's just waiting for it. I mean there's a club that we consulted with in uh, Northern Maryland and you know they hand out a $1,200 per month assessment with a $1,300 a month dues line. Guess what? We, we just watched. They had 70 members walk out the door. Wow. You know? yeah. and, and, and it's because they didn't change the business model, right? Even through COVID, they didn't change the business model. It's how it was all these years. Um, don't want to mention that club. Sure. <laughs> I think 
one thing that you said throughout our conversation here resonates a lot with me, which is you want to keep the club branded as it's known. You want to keep the historical nature of the club known in the public. You don't want to change that, which is similar in a completely different avenue for me in the sense that, you know, our booking engines, we want to put it on a club and we want no one to know it's our booking engine, right? Right. We want to, it's, that's the club's booking engine to drive the club's business. So two different models attacking it differently, but both of us on the same page that the brand at the club level is super important. And frankly, it's 90% of the time what everybody knows in that marketplace. That's it. I mean, there's there's many examples of clubs that were that were failing or that were successful, and you put a different skin on it, and you just shed 80, 90 years of history. You didn't redo the greens, you didn't redo the golf course, maybe did some irrigation work, but it's it could be Donald Ross, and then you just change the name to a, a more current or modern name. It it doesn't do it. And we've we've struggled. We have a club from um, eighteen ninety one that. Even the members don't like their name. But I got to be honest with you. I sit there and I'm like, there's no way we can change this name. The his- you, can't, you can't replace a book. You can't replace history. And, you know, we're looking for ways to create subcultures within the club, whether it's through logo or branding or room. But that's one thing that we embrace. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome back to the Golf Exposed Podcast. My name is Jordan Michael Colson, joined again by John Brown, CEO, Brown Golf Management and Golf Back Solutions. So, John, we just heard from Frank Deniston, awesome guy, very entertaining. We have to have him back for some stories. And I learned a lot from listening to you and him banter back and forth. I know you have a very like-minded approach to the industry, although you're sort of on not different ends, but different levels of the spectrum. Some of the things that Frank touched upon, I want to gain some clarity on, and I think our listeners would appreciate it. So what things that Frank mentioned struck you particularly? Frank's providing a solution for private equity clubs that are, you know, struggling. They're having trouble reinfusing capital. Maybe they've even lost their identity to some degree. I think he's providing a great solution for clubs that are open-minded about, you know, someone else taking the reins as far as the control of the club, but also committed to maintaining the history of the club. I think he provides a great outlet. I think it's unique. Uh, He's the only company I know that's really approaching private clubs in that fashion. He mentioned looking at things and coming through a side door or side window. I think that's absolutely part of his makeup. And I think that's why uh, he's done well, his partner Doug have done well in that environment. And I think if you're a private equity club and maybe you haven't reinvested the capital you need and maybe you're losing some membership or you're aging out and maybe you lost a little bit of your, your core identity, he's a great person to call for a possible solution. Well, it's difficult in any endeavor to sort of grow, adapt without changing the core principles or the heart of the product or service. So he's kind of in the in the trenches with that every day. That's a very hard line to walk. We spoke about this on the show before in broad strokes about the differences between private clubs and public clubs. And if I'm being completely honest, when I hear private golf club, I think probably a little hoity-toity, maybe a little stuck up, maybe a little set in their ways. I don't necessarily know that that is an appropriate preconceived notion for me to have, but what is the biggest difference between a public club and a private club to someone who's outside the industry looking in? 
private clubs looking to provide a lifestyle, networking opportunities. Usually there's larger financial commitments to be part of a private club. There may be even a much more strenuous process for actually becoming a member. You know, you need referral members from the club. You need to fill out applications. You need credit reports. You might need upfront initiation fees. There's a larger commitment, and I think that larger commitment reflects a lifestyle that uh, someone is buying into. I think daily fee courses provide great daily outlets, right? You know, I want to have a great afternoon. I want to have a great experience. I want to breathe some fresh air, get some athletic activity in. That's what a daily fee environment for. I also think a big difference is, you know, when you're in the daily fee world, the world that, you know, a lot of our clubs are that are using some of our technology. I mean, every eight, nine minutes you have expiring inventory. In the private club world, really, you're just trying to grow a network of people uh, to, you know, have a great foundation moving forward. And it's not necessarily about every nine minutes that someone doesn't tee off the first hole is a detriment to the financials of that golf course. And also, a lot of times, private clubs are looking to break even where public courses are, are for profit many times, or they're municipalities which are trying to provide you know, some value to the taxpayers of a local economy. Do you think the exclusivity of a private club, the screening process, for lack of better terms, the, uh, the amount of red tape there is to actually become a member, do you think that sometimes operates or works to a club's detriment where they might be missing out on a lot of potential members because it is such a strenuous, strict process? Or do you think it has to be that way to maintain the integrity of the club? I think there's a balance. And I think Frank's a guy, uh, when he comes in with his business plan, delivers a balance. You know, he gives some realistic perspective on what the market can bear. I think sometimes members of private clubs get a little unrealistic in what the market can bear uh, related to membership and just, you know, their pricing you know model may not be what the market is and, and they have a hard time changing that. You know, there is innovation in every business and the private club business has been slow to that innovation. You know, the top 10% of private clubs will never have to have these conversations, but a lot of private facilities, the majority of sort of the middle tier private facilities, and that's no disrespect, just where we are as, you know, a golf economy, you know, need to be a little bit more innovative, a little bit more open, and they need to figure out how to make things comfortable. Are there still any private clubs that discriminate based on race? Yes. And I've, I, I know you well enough to know that I think I probably know your stance on that, but in this day and age, how does that still persist? It's going away and it will be extinguished soon in my opinion and it needs to be and an open environment uh, as it relates to a golf course and a golf facility is important whether it's private or daily fee equal opportunities to play the game uh, you know needs to exist whether it's private or public uh, you know me well enough to know that you know I care about that and you know any club that has limitations against any particular race any particular sex, any particular sex orientation, it just needs to go away, period. We'll, we'll call Billy if, if, if they don't fix that pretty quick. <laughs> so what is what are some of the differences of the inner workings of the course? For, for example, like the way that you just described the private club's revenue generation, it may not even be – is golf even the cash cow of that course? It could be the hospitality. It could be the food and beverage. What are the inner workings? How do those differ between public and private? Well, a dollar in food and beverage, you know, always has a lot of costs associated with it. Now, if you're 
a private facility with large banquet space and you do a ton of weddings, you know, you're getting a larger percentage of that dollar than just, you know, a private facility, which may be more focused on a la carte dining. But the reality is a dollar in food and beverage, there's, you know, a pretty substantial cost, whether it's food costs, labor, food and beverage expenses, there really is, you know, quite a, a margin hit when you make a dollar in food and beverage. Now, dues, greens fees, cart fees, they flow to the bottom line, you know, a dollar for dollar pretty much. You have a base set of fees as it relates to agronomy at a daily fee course or a private course. For the most part, whether you do 5,000 rounds or you do 50,000 rounds, that's going to be fairly close. So the reality is when I look at our businesses, the food and beverage outlets are there to provide a total experience, but we're really focused on driving the green cart fee and dues revenues of private and public golf courses we work with. You get very intricate at times on T-sheet management. Now, what is the biggest difference there? Because you said in your previous statement that it's not necessarily of the utmost importance at a private club that someone's teeing off every, what was it, nine minutes? Yeah, on average. So what's the what's the difference between actually managing that T-sheet? Because one, one thing I'm learning is that is that is important to the industry and the bottom line, but how does that differ between a private club and a public club? Well, at a private club, you're creating that lifestyle, so you're not necessarily focused on maximizing every potential slot on your T-sheet or all your inventory. Where in a public course environment, you are focused on that, and we see so many mistakes when it comes to T-sheet management. I mean, simple things that just create a possibility that you may not be at the right spot in the market with available inventory because you've just mismanaged your T-sheet. I'll give you a great example. If you go to any public golf course, you're going to see group block. I'm John Brown. I want to bring out 16 players. So I call you a week before. I call a public course ABC, and I say, I'd like to bring out 16 players next Saturday at 10 a.m. And the head golf professional says, well, that's great. I'll book four tee times for you, right? And then what happens is, you know, Saturdays, they're prime times. It's their premium rounds. It's what they make. Frankly, it's what they fill up no matter if they had the 16 players or not. And I'll show up on that Saturday morning and I'll have 13 players. So we just missed the opportunity at that club to sell three additional tee times because we didn't have a policy in place to actually confirm how many players were showing up 48 hours out. Most tee times get booked 48 hours out. You see that. And you see that in the spin cycle all year long. How many times did you not have an available tee time that someone could have purchased at a premium number that wasn't sold because you just banked on a block of tee times that didn't end up coming to play your golf course? So many mistakes like that just over and over and over again. We harp on it all the time. Your inventory is the lifeblood of your daily fee or semi-private golf course. You have to manage it appropriately. All right, John. Now, you don't know this, but while you were gone last week and earlier this week, I was just rummaging through several files in your in your desk. And I pulled your T-sheet management policies and procedures that you actually send to all your all the courses in your Brown Golf portfolio, okay? So there's a lot of terminology on here that I'm not familiar with. And some of it I thought was frankly pretty cool, but I want to get a better understanding. So I'm going to give you a term or maybe a statement or a phrase, and you just explain to someone who's a complete idiot like myself what that actually means and elaborate. Can we do that? Sure. All right. Sunrise 9. Sunrise 9 is a revenue opportunity for every daily fee golf course. Most clubs tee off their first tee. They have straight tee time, so eight or nine or ten-minute intervals, and they'll tee off number one at 7, 7.18, and they're missing out on a back nine that they could also be sending tee times off for 
at nine minute intervals, but offer, you know, a nine hole morning round. So it's a way to generate some additional revenue. Yes. From an agronomy standpoint, your superintendent does need to change some of their practices. Perhaps they mow fairways the night before, but it's a great way to showcase, uh, you know, a nine hole, you know, value oriented round that will not disrupt your typical play and uh, drives more revenue. Okay. And here I thought that was a alcoholic drink made with Everclear. So my <laughs> notes are incorrect on that one. All right. The next term is member block. Well, member block is, is similar to what I talked about with the groups calling in to book their tea times. When you're dealing in a semi-private environment, which we have many of our facilities are semi-private, it becomes sort of the understanding of the members that they can just call in and block, you know, a group of tea times for, you know, their particular groups. And what we see is anytime you allow member blocks and you don't kind of check or control how those tea times are booked, you will always see blocks that are larger than the inventory being used. So it's very important that anytime you're working with member blocks that there's a confirmation period 48 hours out of who's actually going to be playing. That way we can redistribute open tea times back into our tea sheet and therefore back into the market, frankly. This does not mean that we do not want to have member blocks. We want members to be able to play with each other. We just want the opportunity if the inventory is not going to be used to potentially resell it. All right. Given my earlier erroneous definition of Sunrise 9, I don't think that singles pertains to the in-house dating app that you have among members. So I'll just ask you what singles pertains to in this context. Well, singles is, is just referring to anytime that you have an opportunity to, there's really two opportunities with, with how we discuss singles. One is if you got a threesome booked, you need to market that single tea time to anyone who's booked a single tea time previously at your club. So we've got a great automation built into our booking engine where anytime we have multiple threesomes booked, we actually target market anyone who's only booked a single, we give them a value to fill in that foursome. That way we don't have a bunch of threesomes going out. We're actually trying to promote filling that foursome out, which can be tricky sometimes, but that's a way that we've seen success. The secondary aspect of singles is get them partnered with anybody, a twosome, a threesome. Don't just allow a single to book on his own. If you've got a 12 o'clock tea time and there's a twosome in there and you got a 12.09 and it's open and a 12.18 and it's open, whenever that customer calls in and is looking for a single tea time, put them into that 12. Have them meet some folks. Leave the other two foursomes open. When you have a foursome open, you're more likely to book it. Are there, is there anyone who just wants to focus on themselves, work on their game and play alone? Is that an option or oftentimes, I mean, most people are, uh, you know, it's just human nature. They want to be part of the crowd. So, or part of the pack. So are people usually apprehensive about being paired with people they don't necessarily know, or are they usually open to it? If it's during premium windows, there's a general understanding that that's what's going to happen, you know, in the industry. I would encourage anyone who, who enjoys playing as a single, for instance, my brother, Todd, very good player, hates playing alone. But me, I like playing alone. I like teeing off and buzzing around in two and a half hours. That's when the twilight opportunities are available. That's when the sunrise nine opportunities are available. So obviously, you know, our booking engine learns who likes to play as singles and therefore we can market those opportunities. Uh, I think it's important that when you're a golf course owner and operator that you're really marketing to both segments of what the market is, price focus customer, and then the convenience focus customer. And they're both out there and they both want different things. You need to market differently to them. All right. Two terms left. The first one is squeeze times. Ah, squeeze times. Squeeze times are 
whenever you're running a straight tee, but you see an opportunity to add in another tee time, which, you know, you have to be careful when you do this, but it is a good practice. So for instance, maybe you see that uh, a twosome, you know, you got to run, you got a twosome, a threesome, a twosome that went off the first hole. Uh, back to back to back, which you should have paired those two sims together. But maybe there's an opportunity to add in a squeeze time if somebody calls in last minute, you know, in the next hour, uh, where you'll be okay from a pace of play standpoint because you know your tee sheet will move. This is for operators that really understand their tee sheets, really understand their golf course, and frankly understand their market. But it's a great way to make some additional revenue. And last but not least, double tee opportunities. Double T opportunities. This is the number one way a golf course owner and operator can make more money. It's teeing off. It's the sunrise nine, but, you know, souped up where you're teeing folks off the first and 10th hole, and you're doing that basically in a two-hour bank, and then they're turning into the opposite nine. And the reason you would do that is because on the second block, so you might have a block from 7 to 9 o'clock, and then they turn 9 to 11. On the second block, you can get more golfers out on the golf course in a time period where you can charge a premium rate. So if you, if you run double T blocks, so two blocks in the morning, you get more golfers out on the golf course during your premium window. You got to watch pace of play, though. You got to you got to be prepared and you got to be organized to run the double T. Who regulates pace of play? I understand there's got to be some sort of common knowledge, like don't just drag your ass. <laughs> but I mean, come on, it, like it, is is there some guy that walks around the course and is like, guys, girls, come on, like let's get it together here. You have to set the standard and one, and then you need to ranger and and monitor and educate the customers. And every once in a while, there'll be difficult conversations, but it's important for the integrity of pace of play because if you have slow pace of play, it's a killer. And actually, there's another gentleman who runs uh, multiple courses in the state of Michigan that I've been talking to. And he had some really good concepts himself about, you know, we as an industry should really need to standardize pace of play, right? Based off of, you know, do we have a par three as our first hole, par four, par five? Are we running eight, nine, 10 minute intervals? What should the standard be that we all work towards? We all kind of know a window, but, you know, a true standard. I think it's a great idea. All right, John, greatly appreciate the insight and the knowledge. Everything that John and Brown Golf Management has going on, you can check out browngolfmanagement.com and, of course, golfbacksolutions.com, which is your premier booking engine. Really, really cool stuff happening with that. Can private clubs and public clubs alike benefit from implementing Golfback? There's a component of golf back which private clubs can use absolutely to attract new potential members where there's an opportunity for new members that are prospects to play the golf course. So if you're open to allowing prospects to play your golf course, yeah, golf back could be a great solution. Thank you guys so much for listening, subscribing. We're available on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, of course, golfexposed.podbean.com if you just want to check it out on the web. We share it on all our social media sites and our websites. John, a lot of people have been reaching out with great stories, and we have more great guests coming up, and we've had great guests in the past. I strongly urge people who are running golf courses that are in the industry, that are looking for work in the industry, they should probably reach out to you too just to kind of pick your brain. You make yourself very available. You're a great resource. So what's the best way to contact you? Uh, JM Brown at browngolf.net is definitely the best way to uh, reach out to me. If you want to call our main office, 717-525-9734, and you hit the nail on the head, I think as an industry, it's important to work together. I'm an open book. I think a lot of times it's a good thing, sometimes it's a bad thing, but 
I'm very happy to talk to anybody about the industry and what they're doing. And I think we can all learn from each other. Fantastic. Thank you guys very much. We'll see you next week.